Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. It's a pleasure and a delight to be back here. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for your father and daughter duo. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Just would like to also add my farewell to Johnny. I just saw him. He's outside. Well, he's, he's going to Tennessee. Hopefully, many of you will be able to go and visit him and encourage him. And to answer Mark Tatlock's question, what happens if you scan that QR code with my, with my name? You'll simply get a quick little text message pop-up, and you can just submit any questions that you like. Please feel free to ask anything that is on your heart. We want to be able to get a, a feel for what our group is going through. And my resolve is if I don't get any good questions, well, I'll have to ask a few questions of my own. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Today we're going to focus on something very encouraging. We're going to look at three verses. And as you turn there, I couldn't help but read just a little before and just a a little after. So we're going to focus on three verses, but we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Please hear God's word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. These are the very words of God Almighty. I like to start by giving you just a little illustration. A few months ago, we had a Bible study, and it was on, our, on a small little hill, and we had just had a little golden retriever puppy. Our brother Max gifted us a golden retriever. He was just a few months old. And he was running around. He was very excited. But don't forget, we were on a pretty high hill, and there was an edge. And every single time he would get closer to that edge, my heart would just just skip a beat, because last thing I wanted would be to rappel down that hill with a headlamp trying to look for a six-month-old puppy. But what happened is, as soon as he he got too close, his instincts kicked in. Something inside of him told him that, hey, I can't go any further. Something inside of him just made him freeze up, and he wasn't able to take that next step to fall down. You see, God created in animals instincts. We who are created in the image of God have something so much deeper. 
You see, we have Christian resolve. We have Christian reactions. And every believer needs to develop and cultivate and foster and grow your Christian instincts, resolutions, behaviors. Because in one second, your whole world can just change. And we had that illustration. We had that life illustration just a few days ago at our Northridge Bible study. You think there's always action at the Northridge Bible study. It is true. Our kind and gracious Father decided to press pause on our study and to teach everyone there an important life lesson. You see, sometimes God gives you these trials and these difficulties. Sometimes he's gonna, he gives you something that wasn't part of your daily planner, something that you don't necessarily have the energy to address, nor the bandwidth, something that you might not even want to deal with. But at that second, you have to have the right attitude and the, react, and the right reaction. You see, what is a trial? A trial is simply something that God is sending you to get, to grab your attention. What happened Thursday night? As we were studying God's word, Mark Curry got a, and I already spoke to Mark Curry yesterday, everyone is fine. Mark Curry also said, please feel free to use this illustration if it's going to help you prove your point. Mark Curry got a phone call, and it was Pam's mom. They lived just a few minutes from the Bible study. And she was crying. She was a little hysterical. Someone broke into their home and robbed them, an 87 and an 85-year-old Christian, biblically solid couple at gunpoint and took a few things. Most importantly, they took their wedding bands. You see, God wanted our Northridge Bible Study family to take a moment and to take inventory of how he works. I want to assure you both husband and wife are totally fine. They, when I went into their home and on their kitchen table, all you saw was not a Bible, but a stack of Bibles. These are strong believers. And the only thing that was taken from them were things that were precious, but things that they could not take with them to heaven. And I also say the way Mark and Pam handled it was also an example to, our, to us as well. You see, they were trusting. They were controlled. They were composed. They went into Christian reaction. They were still quick, but yet they were very kind. And the only way that can come through is if they have had, they've lived through trials and trials and difficulties in their life. So I'd also like to thank the Northridge Bible Study because you all came together so quickly. And that's what family does. So all throughout this sermon, please do not forget, you're not alone. If you are going through a trial, please reach out to someone. This is the body of Christ. This is the church. But that was a short trial. That was just a few minutes, if not a few days. But I also know that many of you are going through something very traumatic. You have been going through something so difficult, 
trials that have been chronic, things that have been going on for years and years, I would like to just take a moment and say, God has not forgotten you. You are not left alone. As believers, we understand we will have our share of difficulties, pain, sickness, losses, disappointments, partings, separations, as long as we are this side of heaven. Yet, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's 1 John 4, 4. We just need to be ready. We just need to be alert and attentive. Because as God's children, we know that our Heavenly Father knows what is best for us. And we rest in that. And that's why today, what is on my heart is I would like to set you something, biblical principles, so that when you are going through this trial, you'd never have the thought of despair. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 5. That's going to be our principles. We're going to look at four steps. We're going to look how to remain in the fight, to be resolved in our faith, to resist despair, and finally to rest in Christ's love. And then once we have set that groundwork, once we've set that foundation, we're going to turn to Jeremiah and we're going to look and see how the weeping prophet stood against the lies that were cast at him and he was steadfast in everything. Because you see, Jeremiah understood that trials are a part of the Christian life. Trials are necessary for our Christian walk and trials constitute a divine work personally in your each in each of your lives. Therefore, Paul exhorts, but first we're going to look at Romans. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, exhorts the believer to trust in the, in the Lord, in their Lord, through their trial. And doing so, we have the power to overcome crisis. We have the power to properly and biblically respond to the trial that is set in front of you. So we're going to look at trials, perseverance, character, proven character, and then we're going to look at hope and the fact that hope does not disappoint. That's our, that's our framework. And let's start with the first term. The first verse says, but we also exult in our tribulations. It's a fascinating word. Sometimes you would think, how did Paul really intend to use this? Because this word, exult, could also be translated in boasting. Paul doesn't exactly use this word in the historical sense. To boast means to take pride in something. To boast is to have a sense of privilege, to have a long neck, a walk, a stride that is made visible for everyone outside. But this is not the way Paul is using it in our specific context. Because Christians understand there is no pride in our lives because we are not the one who overcomes. All the glory is due to the cross. And we just humbly accept godly pride in our low position. Is this sinful pride? Absolutely not. Because it is not boastful for a man 
to say and to give glory to the one who helps him overcome. Paul's no, Paul knows this because he has seen it personally in his own life. We boast because God is teaching us something of eternal significance in our trials. Spurgeon says it this way, there is a secret sweetness in the gall and wormwood of our daily trials, a sort of indescribable, unutterable, inexpressible, but plainly experienced joy in sorrow. Think about it that way. You see, we are not left to navigate life alone. We also have the Holy Spirit as our sanctifier. And as we read God's word, as we spend time, as we are students of God's word, we see his holiness and our call to follow him in holiness. And all this is the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Please remember this. God is not working against you, but he is working with you in your sanctification. And all of this is for his good pleasure. Paul writes in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 is the key. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And through this trial, God is transforming you. He's removing the things that are unpleasant to him, and he's putting on the things that are of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 reads, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And all of this is being accomplished through you, through your trials. So trials brings about perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Let's look at trials. Let's look at trials now. This is a word that is, uh, in the Greek, is called philipsis. It is used 45 times in the New Testament. It could be translated affliction, anguish, distress, and persecution. As a historical reference, the Greek world would have understood this as to be something very strong and gritty. This wouldn't be something light. The early church would have understood this word to have a sort of pressure, a squeezing. It's, I don't know if you've ever seen a real olive press, but that's exactly the imagery. It is the pressure that is being forced on so that what is good, the olive oil, the oil would be able to be extracted from the pit, from the pit and from the remnant. And that oil, that precious juice, if you will, is designed for good. And in the same way, God is pressing upon your life to remove the things unpleasant, ungodly, and to put on things of the Lord. Maybe you might understand it better if you've ever seen one of those videos of a pneumatic press that has something in its grasp and is just pressing down relentlessly, mercilessly, and has nowhere to stop until the thing is crushed down. 
to something very thin. I hope that was a sobering illustration. But don't forget, that's a pneumatic press. God is pressing down at you with godly stress, and he is doing it mercifully. Athletes would say it this way. It's the heavyweight. It's not the warm-up weight. It's not the lightweight. It's not your personal record. It's not a good weight. It is something that is meant to really break you down so that you can rest and recuperate and then have something even better. A biblical context is seen in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verses 37 to 38. And this is the whole chapter of the heroes of the faith. Verse 37 reads, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. This is the concept of flipsis, of trials. I want you to really understand there is a sovereign God and he is sovereignly preparing you for something greater. And what you're going through is meant to bring about good and godly change. The great Paul, the great apostle Paul is exhorting us. He who has been justified now should exult, not in spite of his tribulations, but because of his tribulations and because of his Lord. Spurgeon summarizes it this way. So surely as the stars are fashioned by his hands and their orbits fixed by him, so surely are our our trials allotted to us. For he, our heavenly father, has ordained their season and their place, their intensity and the effect they shall have upon us. Did you get that? It is ordained for a specific season and for a place and time. And their intensity is there and it is calibrated and the effect will have a positive effect if you remain obedient through it. Christians do not glory in suffering. Paul is not saying for you to run out and to go seek difficulties and revel in them what paul is saying is that he is preparing us the church for what is inevitable paul is lovingly caringly pastorally teaching us that you need to change the way we all view suffering to rejoice in being given the opportunity to show christ's power in your suffering as we trust in god's deliverance We cannot, as God's people, not understand how to apply this. Please take a moment and remember that God wants to train your heart and mind to set your faith on him and to seek out Christ. Why? Because he is the one with all power, all sufficiency. He's the one who will provide fellowship within the trial. He's the one who will provide you wisdom and love and ultimately a way out. All we need to do is to submit in the Lord and to trust him until his work of sanctification is perfected. And we do not lose heart. Why? Because even in the trial, we have Christ. 
Romans 8.35 says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or, or sword, meaning death? And the answer that Paul wants every one of us here to say is an absolutely resounding no. Nothing can ever separate God from his children. And I think a predetermined Christian attitude is re- will really make a difference in how we will live through difficult situations. Samuel Rutherford, the 400-year-old Scottish theologian who's really encouraged my heart, gives us two illustrations. The first one is, when I look into the cellar of affliction, when I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. And then he says, why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord that makes me deep, that is building deep furrows into my soul? For he is no idle farmer. He purposes a crop. So this is a simple principle. Trials are a part of the Christian life. Trials are necessary for our Christian walk. Trials constitute a divine work for our ultimate sanctification. If we accept the season of trial and drought, God will shine his glory on our lives. So when your next trial comes, do not lean too hard on disappointment or discouragement, but pray that to the one who can overcome your trial. And pray that you may persevere during this trial. And that leads us through the next point. Trials brings about perseverance. Perseverance is that simple word that Harry has really taught Cornerstone for years. It is the word hupomeno. We've heard it so many times. Hupo meaning under, meno meaning abide, literally meaning abiding under. under. Not only is the weight pressing down upon your shoulders, but you are still called to persevere and to continue to walk with that weight. It's like a soldier carrying his backpack. Usually soldiers have an 85 to 90-pound backpack, and everything in it is their survival gear. Everything is properly measured. Everything is properly calculated. Everything is properly looked at to make sure it's accurate. It is hand-picked and tested. Nothing too heavy, nothing too big, because they know everything that's in there will weigh you down. And you don't wake up one day with an 85-pound backpack on your shoulder. It's a slow process. You train with less, and then as you grow stronger, the Lord will add more. Because that's exactly how our Lord Jesus works with every trial in our lives. God is gradually increasing your faith. One weight at a time and one trial at a time. And it is the recognition of God's holiness that challenges us to denounce the things of the world, to denounce despair, for us to be steadfast, for us to be confident in our training, to us to persevere and to not let go. And remember, Paul is saying that this is a trained ability. It starts with your daily personal Bible study and your daily personal time with the Lord. This is where we as Christians have to fight for that time because we find worth in that time. 
You train your entire life to be able to remain in the fight, and the fight starts in the morning with your cup of coffee and your Bible and your prayer list. Because you don't know what phone call you're going to get. You don't know when you're going to get that phone call. It might be right after your Bible study. It might even be in the middle of the night where you have not read it, where you might have not been ready for, your, for this battle. But this is exactly the point that Paul is making. Paul is calling Christians to persevere because they know that through this perseverance, God will produce something worthwhile in their faith. And I know it's tough. I know it's tough. Please don't think I'm just here and I'm just saying this. I'm just reading something. This is what we have to live through. This is what we have to really take a hold of. We understand there is never pain without purpose. That there's never something that we're going through that that is not providential. One commentator wrote, I never would have chosen one of the trials I've gone through, but I would have missed, but I wouldn't have missed any of them for the world. So this is our challenge for us today. In light of this truth, in light of this new process or idea of viewing suffering and trials. What do we need to change in our lives? Maybe you need to not reach for your phone in the first thing in the morning or before you leave the house or even before going to bed. Make sure that you are ready to fight for your daily personal Bible study and not just simply shrug it off. Because the bottom line is, We accept the season of difficulty that is to come since God's purposes will never disappoint us. Paul exhorts the believer to trust in the Lord, to remain in the fight. And as you remain in the fight, you have to have that resolve in your faith. And let's look at what that resolve produces. It produces character. It produces character. The first thing I can say about character is that a good character is often lost or is found at a loss in our society today. Today, A good character hasn't really changed. What Paul is saying, though, is not a good character, but a proven character. And I want you to see the difference. A proven character describes the quality of having stood that test. A tried character has been proven by the trial. And a Christian, a mature Christian, has a proven character because he, he is a person who has been purified. He has been through the fires of the trials of persecution, and he has come out on the other side. Peter explains it this way in 1 Peter, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been distressed by various trials. So that, key statement, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, and that's the key idea, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, back then, they didn't have 3D printers that you can print anything. Anything of worth was, print, was made and forged by fire. It was that 
fiery furnace that would be able to separate what is pure from the dross. And oftentimes it is said that trials are the only thing that will help us burn away what is sinful of the flesh of the heart from that which is of the Lord. You see, a proven character is spirit-dependent, spirit-saturated, truth-tethered, Christ-exalting. This is not, in my own words, a panicky person. This is not someone, when faced with trial, doesn't know what to do. J.C. Ryle reminds us, every trial is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us away from the world, to send us to God's word, to drive us to our knees. Health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us more and more to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. You see, everything in this world has to point us and lead us to Christ. Why? Because we have the perfect proven character in the Lord, and that is whom we need to look more and more to. A believer with a proven character knows that Christ is with him at all times, including the waiting room of a doctor. Difficulty in life will strengthen our faith and faithfulness to Christ. And humble submission and trusting our gracious Heavenly Father is a true test of character. Now this is the part which is truly and profoundly essential. Because we often look at trials, we only, we only see them internally. We have to have that reflex and attitude in saying, this trial is not or might not necessarily be only for us. Because you see, Cornerstone, the world is always looking at the Christian. The world is always examining your character. And when Christians are faced with insurmountable odds and yet still remain faithful to Christ, not only do they fortify the other Christians' faith, they also send a message of hope to the world. And that's where we get our fourth point, hope. Trials brings about perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And I promise you, we're living in a time that has no hope outside of Christ. Let me give you a few statistics here. And I promise you, this, this is shocking. This is from the Pew Research, very reputable, reputable and respectable source. They asked one simple question. Would you say you have hope? Would you say you're very optimistic, very pessimistic, somewhat pessimistic, or very pessimistic? And the answer was 50-50. But this was before COVID. After COVID, we're almost up to 60% pessimistic. But it gets worse. When they asked Americans, do you have hope for your children in the future? Do you think your children have a brighter future than what you did? 
once again, before COVID, it was 50-50. But now the numbers are a staggering, pessimistic 82%. I want you to pause there for a moment. What hope does the world have? That's why we are called to offer hope, and that hope is found only in Jesus. God's faithfulness to his children has clear and great implication for hope in our society. We are the light. We are the hope. And let me tell you where there's an abundance of hope. You find hope in your Bible. The Bible gives hope to the hopeless. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ is indeed risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Hebrews chapter 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who was promised is faithful. You see, the Bible is full of hope. And we have many examples of those who have persevered. And this is the hope that testifies to God's love, to his providential care, the promise of eternal life, even when faced with death. There is a special type of hope that is found in Romans chapter 8.28 that we often have to cling to. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul is exhorting Christians to hold fast to their hope. And it is a cycle, this cycle of trials and perseverance and character and hope has this clear intention to make us grow in our knowledge and sanctification of Christ. And hope is the motivation to live a Christian life. So we never lack hope in everything that we do. Why? Because we have seen God's faithful hand in the past with the smaller things, and we know that God will deliver us again and again and again. You see, we have hope, and I want you to understand there is always hope for the gospel believer. And do you want to know why Paul is saying that hope does not disappoint? Because our hope is found in Jesus. And Jesus does not disappoint. Every single time I hear of that word disappoint, I always think of one of my old bosses. He's the Michael Scott of bosses. And for you who don't understand that, your process of sanctification must be higher than mine. <laughs> one day, he, 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 was a, he was a good man. He tried his best. How about that? He invited me to come grab a coffee one day and said, Steve, I want to talk to you. And I was hoping for some good news, maybe a promotion, maybe something, maybe something a little bit of a salary increase. And his whole point, as I stood this side of the table and he was on that side of the table, his whole point was this. He said, Steve, I want you to learn disappointment early on in life <laughs> because it is the most important lesson you will ever learn. I was a Christian at that, at that time, and I stopped and I said, this is the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. But it brought to light how somber those who are, those who are not following Christ. This is their worldview. This is all they have. Because I knew that there was something so much better for me 
because I know the Lord Jesus does not disappoint. Of course, there are things that we'd like to have go a little better, but God's children are being kept by his mighty power, and we learn rejection is protection, and that we are rejected from this job or rejected from someone or something, we know that is the Lord protecting us. One commentator wrote, tribulations provoke a great part of mankind to grumble against God and even to curse him. Paul here is making us focus on what it is achieving. Because there's another dimension, the fact that we have been given the Holy Spirit. And it is the spirit of the Lord of adoption, the spirit of wisdom of life, the spirit of strength and power that will preserve his children as they persevere. The first thing I thought of when we came back from that Thursday night Bible study, when we saw two elderly, kind, gracious believers who have dedicated their whole life how the Lord preserved them to the extent that they don't even remember what happened. The only thing they remember is that they no longer have their wedding bands and their wedding ring. That is God's preservation. And look at me at the last part of Romans chapter 5, 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That word, that concept, poured out, that's an interesting phrase. It's not a small leak in a faucet. It's the whole fire hose. God did not hold anything back when he gave his son on the cross of Jesus. And that is to whom we look for and we will never be disappointed. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and he does not disappoint. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah King. Jesus is, the, is both priest and the perfect sacrifice who made atonement as the Lamb of God without blemish. Jesus took sin upon him and he imparts his righteousness to those who believe in him. And he is the one, Jesus is the God-man who reconciles sinner with the Father. Jesus has procured victory over death. And now we who call upon his name, those who have put their trust, not in their own works, but in the cross, have this, peti- this petition of mercy upon their behalf. They have, been, they have received a covering of righteousness. And only then do you have the peace of God, his mercy, his hope. And only then can you really understand what Paul is saying here, that we can rest in Jesus. We can rest in Christ's love. And we can resist despair. Paul is exhorting the believers here today to rest in Christ's love, to remain in the fight, to be resolved in our faith, to resist despair, bitterness, and to rest in Christ. And having done this, I want you now to please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 38. Because here we have a clear example, a real example of perseverance 
and someone who has hoped in God and who was not disappointed. Let me give you a quick five-minute background of Jeremiah and Jeremiah 37. Jeremiah is all about judgment. It's all about warning. It's the last hour. The time has come. He is the weeping prophet, and he has wept for his people, as well as the suffering that he himself has incurred. This is the most personal of the prophets, and his main purpose is of warning. Jeremiah can be cut up very clearly. Jeremiah preaches judgment and warning to Judah, and then he preaches judgment and warning to the entire nations. The book of Jeremiah is God's final warning to his people, and his people refuse to listen. Let's look at Jeremiah 37. You don't need, keep your fingers, I'm going to go very fast because we only have a few minutes. Verse 1 King Zedekiah, this is a puppet king set in place by, by the Babylonians. He's an evil king. In verse 2, we, see, we read, No one of God's nation is following Yahweh. They have closed their ears to Jeremiah's call for repentance, and they have just pushed them away to the point that they are ready to kill him. We have two power players. We have Egypt, and we have the Chaldeans, not the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, who is also known as Babylon. The Chaldeans have surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they've set up a siege. A siege meaning nothing comes in, nothing gets out. It's a slow suffocation of the city. Consequences will be death. There's famine, there's no food coming in. It is a dire situation. In God's providence, Pharaoh of Egypt sends an attacking army against Babylon. To defend themselves, the Chaldeans retreat from the blockade to intercept the Egyptians in battle. The siege is temporarily lifted and travel, at least for that short window, is now possible. Yet, but, Jeremiah receives an unpopular divine message telling his people, you are still not out of this trial. Don't think that you will be freed from the Babylonians. What you need to do is not trust in in Egypt and Pharaoh, but to give up and say, I give myself to Babylon. This was obviously not a popular message. Yet God is still providing a saving grace. Jeremiah leaves Jerusalem for some personal business. And the captain of the guard sees him, accuses him of treason, takes him, beats him, and then throws him, throws him into not only a prison, but a dungeon. King Zedekiah, worried or wants to hedge his bets, goes and talks secretly to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I've done nothing wrong. Please let me go. The king does not let him go but puts him in a small guardhouse. And now we come to Jeremiah 38. Because the first thing we see in Jeremiah 38, and now turn with me. And that was a pretty good fly, fly 30,000 feet overview in a few minutes. 
we see that Jeremiah in 38 chapter 1 has never stopped preaching God's message. He persevered and he remained in the fight and he continued to proclaim God's word. Let me read Jeremiah 38 verse 1. Now Shephatiah the son of Matan and Gedaliah the son of Pashur and Jukal the son of Shelemiah and Pashur the son of Malkijah heard the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people saying. Did you see that? What is Jeremiah doing? He is being faithful to the message. He is saying exactly what he said before. In verse 2, thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, This city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Jeremiah was still persevering in his role as prophet, knowing that the king was evil, and he would still not listen. Do you see how closely this resembles our message of the gospel in our society today? But God had prepared Jeremiah through various trials. He had grown Jeremiah's faith through those trials. And Jeremiah was resolved in his faith. And now we're going to see the proof of Jeremiah's character. It would not have been easy. And I just have to preface this. It would not have been easy for Jeremiah to give this message because it did have a hearing of treason. You have to surrender is never the right view, and it was very easily misunderstood. But often God calls us to be faithful to a message that is unpopular to the world. Jeremiah was, Jeremiah's message was difficult to hear, and he knew it would have been a death sentence. Verse 4 reads, Then the official said to the king, Now let this man be put to death inasmuch as he is discouraging the men of war who are left in this city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of his people, but rather their harm. Weak, Zedekiah says, behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing. Look at the difference of the weak king with the proven character of Jeremiah. Contrast. Someone who trusts in the Lord was someone who has given up his faith. Now let's look at how Jeremiah resisted despair and bitterness. Verse 6 is inevitable when you stand up for God. They took Jeremiah and cast him into a cistern of Malkijah, the king's son which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. This is not a spa day mud raft. He is left there to die. Nobody knows what was already in that cistern. Nobody knows what was already thrown into there. There may have been other faithful 
who were thrown and left there to die. Jeremiah was going to starve in the cold mud and mire. He's trapped there and he's ready to die a slow and painful death. Did Jeremiah do anything wrong? He did nothing wrong. Was he faithful to God? Yes. And now he finds himself slowly dying. What is going, what do you think is going through his mind? What do you think would be going through your mind? Would you be thinking that trials produce perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint? Would that be your instinct? 30 feet down with no way of getting out, no hope of release. But notice, Jeremiah does not go of the way of Job because Job did not stop complaining and not one word of grumbling was ever found in the mouth of Jeremiah because Jeremiah knows his heavenly father is in control and will preserve him. Jeremiah knows that the hope of God does not and never disappoint. Jeremiah might have nothing with him in the cistern but God because in the cistern he is yet never alone. Yahweh is with him. Jeremiah is our great example, our great assurance that when we resist and we persevere in our trial, we will have gain. One commentator writes, Affliction brings out graces that cannot be seen in the time of health. It is the treading of the grapes that brings out the sweet juices of the vine. So in the same way, it is the affliction that draws forth submission and complete rest in God. Remember, Christ is still with you even if you are in a well of mud. So here's Jeremiah. He's still resting in God's love. He has hope. He knows his hope does not disappoint. And God provides something so miraculous as well as a judgment upon his nation. Who is the one who saves Jeremiah a Gentile. We see that in verse 7. But Abed Malik the Ethiopian, a eunuch, while he was in the king's palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. And he's the one who said, Let us please go save him. One of the principles of waiting upon God and trusting in the Lord is that he will provide for you a way out that you could have never ever imagined. Because obstacles are never a match to our God of glory. Who saves Jeremiah from the mud? Not one of God's chosen children who had heard Jeremiah, who had the Pentateuch, but it was an Ethiopian eunuch. He is an unlikely hero of the Old Testament. And this is where I wanted to bring you right now and the time is almost gone Abed Malik goes and gets men they get rope they put rags under his arms to pull him out Jeremiah is saved from the death sentence and he is immediately taken and brought in front of the king the mud is still encrusted in his robe mud is all over his face and beard He still hasn't eaten anything. 
But Jeremiah understood that perseverance and suffering produces something. What does exhausted Jeremiah say to the king? And this is where I wanted to bring you. Knowing very well he just escaped a death sentence, he says exactly the same thing that God told him before. You see, Jeremiah might have been weak, but his heart was full of resolve at that moment. God's word reads, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with my weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Jeremiah understood that and he remained faithful. And I saved my last quote, my favorite quote, that summarizes it, that summarizes this whole sermon from Martin Luther. And this is where I want to leave you with. Whatever virtues, tribulations finds us in, it develops more fully. If anyone is carnal, weak, blind, wicked, haughty, and so forth, tribulations will make that man or woman more carnal, weak, blind, wicked, and irritable. Yet on the other hand, if one is spiritual, strong, wise, pious, gentle, and humble, he will, he or she will become more spiritual, more powerful, more wise, pious, gentle, and humble. Today we saw four steps. Trials bring about perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. And if you are going through right now a trial, if you are in the cistern, I want to leave you with three things to remember, and we'll end on this. So if you are right now in your trial, remember these three things. Tribulations have a God-ordained purpose. Temporary tribulations produce everlasting future hope, eternal glory. Keep your eye on the cross. Keep your eye on Christ. Pray and ask others to pray for you. And remember, you're never alone. You have Christ's family with you here today. The time is gone. I still had more, but that's all we can do. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to this church. We are grateful that Christ is the provider, the great redeemer, and our savior. We thank you for these dear people. And we know that here, some are really struggling. Would you please provide help for them like you provided for Jeremiah? Father, we do ask that you may move in us. Help us all to be closer to you, to be more faithful to you, to see more of your glory. Would you, hit, would you please help those who are still in darkness and are still fighting against you to repent and to believe and to come to the light, which is Jesus. Grant them mercy, sovereign, effectual mercy, so that they may open their eyes and see that the gospel is sufficient to remove their despair as they repent believe and put their trust in the Lord Jesus as they turn from their sin and cling to the Savior. Make effectual their hearts 
so that they may come to you. Would you please finish this message in our hearts? And Lord, help us especially. Lord, please help those who are truly suffering and are in turmoil. Hear their prayers today and strengthen them. And we pray this in the mighty name of our Savior. Amen.